a roundup of the main business news from China and elsewhere. This is Global Business. From CGTN headquarters here in Beijing, this is Global Business. I'm Michael Wong. The headlines we're tracking at this hour. Policy steady. China keeps its benchmark lending rates unchanged in January. The silver economy. We'll explore how China is supporting the welfare of its senior citizens and the opportunities presented to businesses as the country's population ages. And South-South Cooperation, representing some 80% of the world's population, developing nations, including China, gather in Uganda to discuss how to foster stronger partnerships for growth and development. And let's begin with monetary policy, where China's central bank has kept its benchmark lending rates unchanged from the previous month. That's in line with market expectations. The country's one-year loan prime rate, the LPR, which is based on the lending rates that 20 banks give to their best customers, that rate was kept unchanged at 3.45%. The five-year loan prime rate on which many lenders base their mortgage rates also stood unchanged at 4.2%. Despite keeping benchmark rates steady in January, Wen Bin, the chief economist of China's Minsheng Bank, believes that key policy rates are still likely to be lowered going forward. All right, for more on China's monetary policy, I want to bring in Professor Zhang Gong from the University of International Business and Economics. Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. So if we take a look at analysts outside of China, they seem to want and expect more stimulus from Chinese policymakers, whereas China itself we see when it comes to monetary policy. It's gradual, it's steady, it's more measured, it's more targeted. Uh, talk to us about this dichotomy and why it's happening. I think um, it all depends on the economic outlook uh, getting to the new year. Uh, we know that uh, you know 2023 goes down in history as not bad year at all. You know 5.2 percent GDP growth, and moving forward into 2024, I think the consensus is a little bit cautious. Uh, it's not a lot of optimism I'm seeing. So I think that's the the background against which you know what you're coming from, saying that uh, you know many experts are expecting a fairly loose monetary policy, further reduction rates uh, moving forward. I think that's actually quite likely in my view. And perhaps policymakers also, I think, when they're looking at different cases around the world, perhaps don't want massive stimulus that could create some negative side effects uh, down the road as well. So when we consider monetary policy in the context of the overall support package that we see from China, of course, there's fiscal policy as well. Uh, what is the role of China's monetary policy in supporting the Chinese economy right now? Well, first of all, um, China's economy doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is a macro environment globally. And, you know, we know that uh, from a global perspective, uh, you know, many leading economies are not doing so well, are not expected to do so well uh, in 2024. It's going to be sort of an anemic in my view. Uh, now, coming back to China, the combination of monetary policy and uh, uh, fiscal policy has been the hallmark of China's uh, policy instruments. And I think traditionally, um, the, the government probably, in my view, plays more of a strong role in the fiscal side. But monetary policy, the government um, can afford to be a little bit more sort of lenient and more aggressive in the sense that uh, we don't see inflation at all so far in China. For the entire, you know, post-pandemic uh, era uh, for about a year and a half right now, um, many other countries have seen 
high inflation rates, uh, not so much in China. So I think uh, against that background, I think the central bank can afford to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of rate reduction. Uh, and the rate is actually you know, not that low in, in China's case. Uh, China hasn't reduced rates for many years. So uh, you know, I think uh, it's quite likely that they can still afford to go, uh, the rates can go, full, go, down, uh, go, go low, low uh, a couple of rounds uh, moving forward. Okay. Professor Gohan, thank you for your thoughts on that. Stay with us. We're going to come back to you in just a moment. China has recently issued a guideline to strengthen what's known here as the silver economy. Now, the silver economy refers to the economic activities and market opportunities arising from the country's aging population. Now, speaking to the press earlier, China's National Development and Reform Commission, the NDRC, saying that people aged 60 and above make up over 20% of China's population and developing the silver economy is a practical need to support a better life as people in this country age. The NDRC saying that strengthening the silver economy is a key step to promoting high quality development that supports China's modernization efforts and will impact several areas of the economy, bringing new opportunities and bearing huge potential. Take a listen. We will put forward a package of supporting policies covering the application of scientific and technological innovation, land and housing security, financial support, talent, team building, data support, anti-fraud service and strengthen the overall coordination and promotion of these tasks. This is aimed at responding to the care concerns of the elderly, meeting their demands and enhancing their welfare. All right, let's bring back Professor John Gong to get his take on the development trends and opportunities as the Chinese population continues to age. So, Professor Gong, according to estimates by Chinese policymakers, by the year 2035, China's so-called silver economy could be worth some four trillion U.S. dollars. What kind of opportunities do you think that presents for not just domestic but also international uh, companies here in China as well? Well, by that time, I'm part of that economy as well. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think uh, you know China. Really really needs to learn the lesson from Japanese experience in that when a population ages, the economy uh, sees a significant slowing down and we try to avoid that and I think that's why we're starting early. Before we get into that stage, we have to plan prepare for that and I think, um, you know, I think, I think we should turn the table and not view it sort of in a negative light and, and, and see it from an opportunity perspective. I think there are many more opportunities associated with the, the silver economy. Uh, first of all, I, I don't think that people, uh, by the time they reach 60 years old, they're just going to sit back home and doing nothing. Uh, you know, people reaching 60 years old are still very healthy and they can still work. So I think, um, you know, this talk about uh, China's population uh, going down can be somewhat mitigated by just extending people's work ages, right? I mean, they can work longer years. So I think, you know, that's the first thing. The second thing is that there are many more opportunities and also new services and technologies that can be developed to cater to that segment of the population uh, and I think Chinese companies actively pursuing that um, so so I think um, you know from that perspective it's a uh, it's, it's not a it's not a something bad I think it's an opportunity yeah. uh, we, we shouldn't have this defeatist attitude that the economy is going down because of aging population I just don't buy that at all I reject it so <laughs> should we say that 60 it's a new 40 or something along those lines well in the US there's a saying that life starts in the, the 50s or 60s right? something along those lines I guess okay. it's a mindset 
issue uh, okay. as well. Although I do want to ask you uh, in terms of what innovation perhaps uh, China's aging population is driving when it comes to, let's say, trends in healthcare, trends in financial services as well. Yeah, I think, first of all, you know, it, it, there will be new technologies to make people a lot more healthier, a lot, a lot healthier, a lot more um, able to work. Uh, I think you know it, it's all about extending people's working ages. Uh, even even I think people when they get into their you know sixties, they can even do some manual work. I think mm. so. So I think you know these kind of uh, technologies that uh, that make the uh, people in that age group can, can still um, be effective in society is probably. Uh, Good business opportunities for many companies to pursue. Another thing related with with healthcare, also with um, with home care. You know, for example, mm. uh, uh, catering to people who really need medical needs. Um, how do you, uh, you know? lead a retirement life that's uh, uh, stay away from kids and all these kind of things. Uh, I'm actually preparing for this, by the way. <laughs> Good. So I, I'm glad we're speaking to you uh, on, on this topic. So you hinted that uh, we shouldn't be overly concerned about the impact of China's economy as the country ages. And I'm wondering whether or not uh, China, for example, by investing in productivity, long-term drivers of growth, that can offset Perhaps yeah. some of the demographic challenges it's currently facing. Absolutely, um, you know the, the the theory that the population decline has a has a negative impact on supply on labor supply, for example, uh, is something that I don't quite agree with. I think, um, you know, we, on one side we're talking about AI, we're talking about robotics. On the other side, we're talking about labor shortages. You know, I, I just don't buy that argument at all. I think, um, you know, we are very lucky that China's aging population problem comes at a time when, um, you know, AI and robotics are becoming more and more practical, are being more and more deployed uh, in, in real life. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a way to at least to uh, adjust to the population and demographic change. Yeah. That's a great point because when we see other economies perhaps going through a similar phase, they didn't have, for example, perhaps such productive tools that we see right now, the potential exactly. of these tools to raise productivity. Okay, Professor Gohan, thank you for that. Back to you in just a short moment. A quick break still to come here on Global Business. Strengthening South-South cooperation, the largest grouping of developing nations is meeting in Uganda for the G77 plus China summit to forge stronger partnerships, power growth and development. The world economy as we know it is about to change. Global Business Reports highlight emerging markets, developing countries, and dynamic sectors worldwide. We feature top analysts and newsmakers to provide perspectives on every facet of business. From an on-the-ground perspective, we provide you with balanced and objective assessments. Fast, sharp, and insightful. Global Business. Only on CGTN. The third South Summit of the Group of 77 plus China is looking to bolster South-South cooperation. The two-day meeting, which opened on Sunday in Uganda's capital of Kampala, is being held under the theme, Leaving No One Behind. Our Nick Mudimba has more. Senior officials met to consider the draft outcome document of the third South Summit. Uganda has assumed the chairmanship of the Group of 77 plus China from Cuba, which held the mantle for the past one year. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres advised global South countries to demand their rights and negotiate their clear position from the rich global North countries. 
Today, you are the largest grouping of the Global South, representing 80% of the world's population. And your solidarity and partnership are essential to building a sustainable, peaceful and just world for all. A world in which the United Nations Charter, international law and human rights prevail in global relations. According to the UN chief, many G77 groups are grappling with economic challenges resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic, crippling debts, a cost of living crisis and a sky-high borrowing costs. Chinese Vice Premier Liu Guzhong emphasized the need for global South countries to be more assertive with the shared common interest borrowed from BRICS, which realized the historic expansion that strengthened momentum of solidarity and cooperation among emerging markets. President Xi Jinping pointed out that South-South cooperation is a great undertaking by developing countries to seek strength from unity. We have been deepening the South-South cooperation, advising North-South dialogue, and sailing together in international affairs. The G77 and China are our important cooperation mechanisms with all the framework of the UN. Countries of the South have also created such platforms as the BRICS and the African Union to send common messages and shared common interests. The unjust and inequitable international political and economic order from the past continue to have lingering effects. We need to renew our efforts to forge a united, equal, balanced and inclusive global development partnership and build a community with a shared future of mankind. The G77 plus China summit will close its curtains on Monday with plenary sessions from heads of state and government and heads of delegation with new adoptions expected. The group of 77 also makes statements at various main committees of the General Assembly, other subsidiary bodies, sponsors and negotiates resolutions and decisions at major conferences and other meetings held under the United Nations dealing with international economic cooperation and development as well as the reform of the United Nations. Nick Mudimba, CGTN, Kampala, Uganda. So what exactly is the Group of 77? Well, the grouping was established back in 1964 by 77 developing countries at the UN Conference on Trade and Development in Geneva. Now, today it boasts 135 members. The Group of 77 provides the means for the Global South to articulate and promote collective economic interests. It also aims to enhance the joint negotiating capacity on all major international economic issues in the UN system. Now, while China is not a member, it has actively engaged with the G77 since 1991. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is urging the G77 and China to drive momentum for global governance reform. Well, disruptions in Red Sea shipping is impacting East Africa's food security. The food supply chains in the region are seeing a rise in risk due to the rerouting from the Suez Canal to the Cape of Good Hope. Arnajma Abdirizak has more. Anxiety is high across East Africa. The region's supply chain remains threatened. We are here at the coastal port city of Mombasa and as you can see behind me is a key entry point for goods destined for East Africa and neighboring regions. Hundreds of ships dock at the port of Mombasa, carrying everything from cars to retail. But as shipping lines continue to avoid their usual shorter Red Sea route, 
amidst recent attacks poised by Houthi rebels, concerns a growing overshipment of essential goods, especially food. With cargo being rerouted away from the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, concern is growing that delays in delivery, increased insurance costs and potential disruptions to the supply chain could drive up prices and limit the availability of essential food items. It is going to be bad. It, it, it's just starting right now. But uh, considering uh, food is consumed continuously, if you break that supply, it means you already cause, uh, you destabilize the, the supply chain, you cause a high demand for something that is not available. So definitely it becomes a dire situation. The clock might also be running out on perishable items. Any delays or interruptions in transportation could result in significant losses. And it's why Ali says some might now consider alternatives. If the transit times are longer, that means they'll take longer to reach their destinations, right? So the, 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 the exporters will prefer a, 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 a mode of transport that is faster than the longer route that they, the ships will take, which means they'll now use the air. That reality will mean inevitable food inflation. Because of this crisis, right, that means that the, the importers are going to pay more in terms of freight rates. And what happens then, the importer is going to transfer that cost to the final consumer with me and you. So it means that the disposable income that we used to have to buy food will be reduced, meaning that even the quantity of food that these people will buy will be reduced. And for households and consumers, it's a father blow already struggling with rising prices at home. If the price of food items such as these increase, citizens will have to dig deeper into their pockets. Our income is not going up, but the cost of goods keeps on surging. It's not the first time East Africa's food security has been rattled, and the ongoing Red Sea shipping crisis only highlights the region's urgency to strengthen its food supply ecosystem. Najma Abdirzak, CGTN, Mombasa, Kenya. We are all connected across borders, across continents, connected by ideas, a shared humanity. Stay connected. Well, today marks the 10th anniversary of China's first meeting of the central leading group for comprehensively deepening reform. Now, over the past decade, a series of historic changes and achievements have been made in economic and social development. Key reforms have allowed China to eliminate absolute poverty and foster the creation of a moderately prosperous society in all respects. The country's economic strength has made a historic leap, now accounting for over 18% of the global economy and ranking second in the world. China has also become the major trading partner of more than 140 countries and regions, leading the world in terms of total trade in goods. Meanwhile, amid rapid development of science and technology, China has become a global innovation leader, ranking 12th in the Global Innovation Index. Well, in recent years, many local governments across the country have rolled out wide-ranging measures to promote the development of key supply chains. Our Cao Chufeng is in Guangdong province, one of the biggest manufacturing hubs in China. For more.
Back in 2021, Guangdong became the first provincial government to include a plan to implement a supply chain chief plus owner system into its work report. Supply chain chiefs are appointed top local officials that are responsible for overseeing specific industries, while supply chain owners are key businesses in industries able to drive the development of the whole industrial chain. The system promotes cooperation between the government and market to drive the safety and development of supply chains. This system aims to combine the forces of the market and government, creating a proactive government and an efficient market. The primary tasks of supply chain chiefs are to integrate resources and introduce supporting policies. Supply chain owners need to be entities capable of driving the development of the entire industrial chain. Guangzhou Automobile Group, or GAC Group, is a supply chain owner for both new energy and smart connected vehicle industries in Guangdong. Its new energy brand, Ion, does business with several hundred supply chain enterprises or projects within the province, directly driving an annual output of around 2.8 billion US dollars. And many suppliers are connected to guarantee swift production. After users place a vehicle order through our app, the intelligent production scheduling system can complete factory scheduling and distribute component orders within four hours. The real-time sharing of production progress allows 23 nearby suppliers to achieve synchronized delivery. GAC Group, along with other organizations, also set up an investment fund at the end of last year to invest in more projects in targeted industries. DSASV, another supply chain owner of smart connected vehicles, has also publicly announced similar plans. And of course, there is the question of whether such a system would help the supply chain owners squeeze the profit of other companies along the chain. But one expert say the system is really about aiming for a win-win situation for everyone. If we can collectively expand the cake, everyone gets a larger share, right? In the future, competition is not merely between individual companies. It involves individual enterprises aligning with the entire industrial chain to compete with other companies. Professor Chen says the system aligns with China's plan to create globally competitive businesses as well as industries that align with the strategic needs of the country. And for more on what China's reforms in opening up has meant for the country's growth and development, let's bring back Professor Zhang Gong from UIBE. Professor Gong, so explain to our international viewers the significance when it comes to the changes in mindset, the changes in objectives as China went through not just reform, but comprehensively mm -hmm. deepening reform, not just opening up, but high quality opening up as right. well. Well, um, well, we have to keep in mind that China came from a Soviet-style planned economy uh, up until um, Mr. Jinping came to power in the late 1970s. And what happened in China since then has been a historic monumental change, and in which you know brings uh, the living standard, brings the economy to such a current status. And I think opening up and reform are the two pillars of that historical process. So I think it's extremely important. We're very lucky looking back uh, at what Mr. Deng Xiaoping did back in 1978. He decided to go down that path, decided to introduce reform and opening up. 
And I think we are seeing the fruits being born right now. Mm. So let's take a little bit uh, of a closer look at the past decade in terms of comprehensively uh, deepening reform. Which stood out to you? Which reforms do you think really made an impact, not just on China's domestic economy, but also for the global economy? Well, uh, looking back, I think from an economic point of view, I think the most important thing is to open up the markets, to bring down the uh, market barriers to allow market access for anyone, for every company, no matter what form it is. Um, so it used to be everything is dominated by the state-owned enterprises, uh, and you need to get a license to enter into a market. Today, you know, there are many, many industries and, and sectors that are totally open for uh, open competition. Um, and uh, you know, automobile company, automobile industry, you know, just program a minute ago, is a perfect example. We have SOEs competing in that market. You have foreign companies competing in that market. You have private companies like GD, like BYD competing in that market. It's a very, very successful market, even though there's intense competition. I, I always talk to my American friends that in the United States, when they talk about competition, they have probably five, six, seven, eight companies in mining a market. That's called a competition. In China, we have over 100 companies competing. That's called a competition. And automobile industry is a perfect an example of that. And I think that's a fundamental change to China's economy. And also, you know, you asked the question about what's the global impact. I think the competition here in China has global implications as well. It has a spillover effect uh, in that uh, technologies uh, can be developed here domestically and, and then spilled over to other countries. And also, I think, uh, you know, from export point of view, the Chinese companies that are uh, the survivors of intense competition domestically are very competitive internationally. Yeah. And, and they are exporting goods, and they are also operating in international markets yeah. as well. And many of the business leaders that we spoke to, whether it's domestic or international companies, they've certainly told us if you can compete and win in the China market, you can win anywhere in the world. Now, China has said, Professor Gong, that uh, reforms will never stop. This is a never-ending process. Right. So when you take a look at the steps going forward, what are the next steps needed for China's reform and opening up as the country continues to modernize and continues to promote high quality development? Well, uh, honestly speaking, I think, you know, from an institutional perspective, there's always this sort of entrenched interests that are holding on to their existing incumbent interests, right? Uh, and I think the, 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 the deeper reforms we're talking about are, are really targeting these sort of entrenched interests and, and making these sectors, make these corners of economy more competitive. And I think probably going to run into resistance somehow, but I think as long as President Xi is determined to carry out reform further, what he described as deepening reform, I think these things will be eventually, you know, overcome. And I think, um, you know, further shortening the, uh, the negative list, uh, opening up more markets, um, uh, foster private companies' growth, and these are the things that uh, really needed for this country. Okay, Professor Gong, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. Professor John Gong from UIB, thanks. Love this edition of Global Business here on CGTN. I'm Michael Wong here in Beijing. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time.